Welcome back to another edition of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England with Save Our States and uh, very glad to talk with Mike Russell today. He is a senior executive, longtime senior executive with CRC Advisors. And Mike, uh, you know, welcome to the program. That's the first question is what, what is that? Most of our listeners probably have, have never heard of uh, CRC. So tell us what, what you do. Thanks, Trent. Great to be uh, with you on the podcast. Uh, before I even get into to, to my role up here in Washington, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, you guys at Save Our States are doing such terrific work. The effort going on now by these liberal activists and billionaires to meddle in the election process, uh, their effort to dramatically change the way we elect a president. This is of national concern, and, and you guys are doing a terrific job not only bringing national attention to this issue, but but also to your efforts, because we've seen a number of states, they've either rejected uh, these laws to try to change presidential elections or their slow walking laws to change our election process, because due in large part to what you guys are doing, uh, many lawmakers now recognize the potential damage this national vote can do, especially to voters in rural states. So appreciate what you all are doing. We're right there with you in that, uh, in that effort. Now, in, in terms of me, I've been uh, with CRC Advisors, uh, DC area here now, close to, well, more than 21 years, probably closer to 25. Um, so I work with a number of businesses, nonprofit groups, trade associations, citizens, individual experts. And we're all about advancing ideas that support a free market economy, limited government, less government regs, an intrusion on businesses and individuals, strong defense, obviously, of our constitutional rights, the First Amendment, Second Amendment, we're big in those defense of the unborn, defense of life, um, exposing the negative impacts of this growing cancel culture and wokeism that's sweeping the nation. So uh, there's there's a lot of activity and as well with uh, in terms of your issue, election integrity. So we can we can talk more about that later if you want to. Absolutely. Well, the, the second question is about just a piece of this puzzle, and that's the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, in, in the time I've been involved in politics, I don't think we, we have had such an impactful Supreme Court term as the one that just wrapped up. And so I'm, I'm curious for any reflections you have and then what you think about the court going forward. Do you think that the next term is going to receive the same kind of attention, is going to have the same kind of impact on our politics and, and our culture? Yeah, great question, Trent. Um, Clearly, this this past session was monumental in terms of the court's decision and impact on the life issue, also Second Amendment, gun rights, uh, and others. You know, and the left is attempting to fearmonger regarding a lot of these rulings, a lot of these decisions, uh, and they're also uh, fearmongering on your primary issue, trying to save our states. They're trying to suggest <laughs> that if we change the way we elect a president, in other words, if we if we get a national vote. And I refuse to word, use the word popular. Okay, that's there. It's not popular when you look at what the scam really is. So yeah. if we were to enact a national vote, uh, the, the left is saying uh, that somehow, magically, uh, then controversial decisions from the Supreme Court or decisions that the left disagrees with would just go away. So we need to change the way we elect our president because that would change Supreme Court dynamics or this composition of the Supreme Court. And, um, and, and so uh, we need to move on this national vote issue. 
So that argument defies logic in so many ways, Trent. It'd probably take three more podcasts to, to discuss it. But uh, I, I point to this headline in the New Republic that said, quote, women would, uh, would lose their right, wouldn't lose their right to choose if we elected a president by popular vote. So the left is out fear-mongering and demagoguing on this. Um, and, and that argument just ignores some basic facts. Justices Alito, Chief Justice Roberts, they were both appointed by President Bush after he won re-election in 2004, winning the Electoral College and the national vote. So the argument also assumes, wrongly, that, that a national vote would be the same as if the election had been run with a, a big different set of rules. If we have a national vote, then the whole dynamics, as you know, of how presidential candidates campaign and the strategies and the tactics that they use in their presidential campaigns would change dramatically. Um, uh, so there's really no way to suggest with any kind of credibility that uh, a national vote would, would positively impact the Supreme Court in a way that the left can predict. We just can't say that with any kind of credibility. And, and as a result of the Supreme Court actions, the left's also out with other uh, fear tactics. You know, they're, they're saying that democracy is going to dry up and disappear uh, if you vote Republican. Um, and as a result of these Supreme Court decisions, you know, Bill Clinton recently said it on a late night talk show that he's concerned about our democracy drying up. Um, and so they're using the Supreme Court as leverage. The gun rights decision is another area where they're really fear mongering and demag demagoguing and uh, and so I think there, I think this is all a, a strategy by the left, by Democrats who are looking at a, at a pretty bleak midterm election, um, where if they can, if they can try and, and scare people over these issues, then they're going to be somewhat successful in getting uh, Democrat support for this next election. And if you look at recent surveys, you know that voters are far more concerned about, uh, obviously, inflation, high consumer prices, energy, food, uh, jobs, a lackluster economy, border security, election integrity is another big issue. And they largely blame the Biden administration for and Democrat policies for the shape that we're in. So the, the Supreme Court, obviously, uh, they're going to be closely watched and monitored from here on out. Uh, Justice Thomas signaled um, in the Roe decision, and he also signaled with the uh, Second Amendment decision that there could be other areas where the court would be amenable to taking on other issues. And I think Justice Thomas did that intentionally to signal that uh, the Supreme Court is not not done. So uh, they've uh, they've are are going to be a continued focal point for sure. Yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like the Democrats' message is a little bit convoluted, and I'm I'm just curious. Uh, this maybe we'll have to call this question two point five because I, I, it seems like their demagoguery around the electoral college is an attempt for them to walk back the fact that while they're out there saying democracy is under attack, uh, you know we need more democracy. They're also the, the response to the Dobbs decision is, whoa, 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 that's too much democracy. Right. We, we, right. we want court to control this issue. We don't want this. You know, we don't want abortion to be a democratic issue. 
And so now they're trying to pivot and say, well, but if we had more democracy over here, then we could have less democracy over here. And that would be okay because we'd be getting what we want. I mean, do, do you, do you think that voters did, did, I mean, did they detect in the Democrat messaging just how inconsistent that is? Does it, does it confuse people, you know, or, or does this democracy scaremongering actually work at all beyond, you know, I, I'm sure it works with the Democrat base, but does it, does it work with anybody else? I think you're, you're spot on, Trent. I, it works with the Democrat base, but when, when uh, I, I believe it's 41% of the American people now say that inflation is their top issue, and then uh, jobs in the economy comes in right after that. Uh, abortion right now is trending as a, as a top, top issue. I think it comes in number three or four, depending on the survey. But I don't, I don't expect that to hold. Um, and and the, the, the issue here is, I think it's really about priorities this cycle. You know, the Democrats are focused on uh, a lot of issues and, and working in areas where the American people just don't list that as a high priority. And then, then on the issues, uh, education, for example, they're, they're way out over their skis. On, on demanding critical race theory and politics in the classroom. And, and, and so you're finding a real pushback from, from concerned parents and concerned citizens on education, for example. And what's the Democrat response to that? We're gonna vilify the parents who dare to complain about it. We're gonna call, call you in some cases, like in Virginia, domestic terrorists, because you dare to criticize the education system. Read a... Uh, I'm going to read a statement here yeah, yeah. from a Washington Post finance columnist, Michelle Singletary. She said, I, I'm going to say this. And if I get banged for it, I don't care. She said, there's a great deal of Americans. It's uncomfortable to say they're spending more, but they're not going to go under. OK, so her. So the Democrat answer for high consumer prices and and inflation, uh, it's un it's uncomfortable to say, yeah, we're spending more but they're not going under. So the, your response is just tough it up, live with higher prices, live paycheck to paycheck. That's your answer to inflation and a stagnant economy. You know, you just can't get away with that uh, and win people over, independents and moderate voters. You can't do that. So if you're attacking parents on education, if you're, if you're saying just, just tough it up on inflation and, and high consumer prices, because you should be spending more, and living paycheck to paycheck, if you want to ignore border security, and uh, and you know, and some of these other issues that are of, of top concern, especially among the border states, then I don't know how you really, I don't really know how you you win that middle voter, that moderate, that self-described politically agnostic voter, because they're they want more than that. They don't want that as an answer, and and I think the the in many cases. They're making the same mistake that, that other campaigns on both sides of the aisle over the years have made, and that is we're, we're just against Republican Party policies and politics, and, and you guys are going to see bad things happen if you vote Republican. What's your plan? How do you turn that around? What, you know, what are you offering the American people that's a vision for them that will say, yeah, we're going to address inflation, we're, we're going to uh, address supply chain issues. We're, we're going to do something about border security and we're going to get uh, politics out of the classroom. They're not saying any of that. They're doubling down on yeah. their, on their uh, policies. 
And so I, again, you know, to your point, Trent, they're playing to their base, but I still believe that, that you, you know, when we know this to be a, to be true over election after election, you, you have to do far better than just get your base turned out. You have to win, you know, hopefully one out of every two or one out of every three self-described moderate or independent voters. If you, if you have a, if, if you have any kind of hope at all to be successful. Yeah, and the result of everything you're saying, Mike, is, is that the polls seem to agree Republicans are ex- extremely likely to take back the U.S. House of Representatives. But question number three, Mike Russell, is about the U.S. Senate. Right. Uh, talk to us about the prospects for the, for the U.S. Senate. There are a lot of races that either are close or are likely to become close before the election. What do you think is going to happen? Well, there to the to the House side first. Uh, virtually no political analyst in D.C. or anywhere in the country can say with a shred of credibility that the Democrats are going to maintain majority control of the House of Representatives. You know, we know this: four hundred thirty-five seats are up. Uh, the Cook Report rates thirty-one seats as toss-ups, twenty-two held by Democrats, nine by Republicans. So you're talking about a shift of, and there's some special elections going on in August. Minnesota, Arkansas, two in New York. So it's four or five seats that uh, Republicans have to pick up if these special elections uh, come out uh, differently. Line is just a handful of House seats. Court is always conservative. I mean, I think we could see Republicans pick up 30 or more seats. Remember during the Obama years, okay, this was the beloved president. Okay, during both terms of President Obama, he lost 76 House seats. Yeah. Bill Clinton in 94 midterm election lost 52 House seats. And these were popular presidents. And Joe Biden is not. He's not a popular president. Uh, so we he's got a, a, a very uh, different political landscape. And his party is on, on, on a much different political ground going into this midterm. And I also want to mention uh, this June special election in Texas, strongly Democrat district in Texas flipped Republican control in June. The, uh, the GOP candidate, Myra Flores, she, she won in a district that was 85% Latino in Texas. She won 51-43. She's married to a border patrol agent, so she made border security and then high food and energy prices, the top uh, uh, issues of her campaign, and she crushed the opposition. So Republicans are winning, they're flipping districts, and they're going to continue to do so. And more importantly, they're starting to recruit Latino and African-American candidates in a way that we've not been able to do before. So that's, a, that's a, an important shift, I think, in the, in the dynamic of politics. So uh, the Senate, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm less bullish. I, I, I like uh, Adam Laxalt in Nevada. I, I believe he will win. Uh, we could win in Georgia with Herschel Walker, but he's struggling. That campaign is is close. Races in New Hampshire, they're in Colorado, they're close as well. So, um, you know, we we could have done, I think, a little bit better in our recruiting for Senate candidates. And it's a tougher job to oust uh, a sitting senator. Um, the dynamics of that, you know, people have more of a relationship or more knowledge about their U.S. senator than they do their House member. So it's a tougher job to get uh, to, to enact change in the U.S. Senate. Uh, but the bigger issue for Democrats, Trent, I think, is this anti-Biden wave. And it's big. You know, 64% of Democrat voters don't want to see Biden run again for president. 
So, so Mike, let me jump in there because I want to I want to make that our question number four. I mean, everybody is starting to talk about this, even on the left, that most voters don't want. To, and I, I saw a, a clip the other day of Biden having a back and forth with a reporter who was asking about this. You know, most most Democrats don't want Biden to run, even though they say, you know, I mean, obviously, they're Democrats. If Biden runs, they'll vote for him. Uh, but but I mean, a huge supermajority of Democrats say they'd rather have somebody else on the ticket. Right. So question number four is, how does that happen? And, you know, I, I've got to cheat with the question here, too. Uh, and uh, how does it happen? And and who who would that be? Because Kamala Harris <laughs> is extremely unpopular. I mean, it doesn't there's no there's no obvious person waiting in the wings. I mean, Bernie Sanders uh you know, maybe thinks that, that he is that person, but, uh, you know, his time seems to have passed. What, what happens? Yeah. Um, it, that boy, I tell you, that's, that's the $64 billion question there. Uh, they don't have really a standard bearer. Gavin Newsom in California obviously is, is getting active quickly. Uh, he's running ads, taking on uh, DeSantis in Florida. So he's positioning himself to be the standard bearer. But I, I don't just don't know how successful having a, an ultra liberal governor from a state like California, where you have so many issues and problems with high taxes and flight out of that state, you know, they're losing population because of the regulatory burdens on businesses and individuals. And then uh, and then just sort of their, their environmental approach is, 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 is really, really tough. Their, their business climate is tough. Uh, you know, what was once the jewel of the nation, San Francisco, has got just huge problems with homeless and crime. So California is no model that I think is going to play nationally. And yet Newsom is the only one that I see as emerging uh, who might be uh, someone that, uh, that the party could get behind. Clearly, the Biden administration is, is you know, the, you, when you see the news media shift and start to report how badly his numbers are and how badly uh, people are reacting to his policies, then you know they're setting the table to try to get someone else into that mix. It's not Kamala Harris. I mean, they just, yeah. they, they clearly are not looking to that as an option. So, you know, I actually heard a, uh, and I don't believe that this will happen, but it, it, that that they'll try to figure out a way for Harris to resign, put Newsom in, appoint Newsom as the vice president, so that he would be, you know, have some national bona fides and credentials uh, as the next presidential cycle comes in. I I don't see how that could happen, but that that's been floated around. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to imagine Kamala Harris resigning or doing yeah doing anything to step out of the way she clearly sees herself as uh you know as as a presidential contender yeah. and i mean it would be it would be a bad look for democrats with a with a big segment of their base if they sidelined a minority woman in order to elevate a white a white man right i mean I, it seems like that's yeah. another that's another sort of problem that they've created for themselves is that every decision on the on the left has to be you know race and gender uh, approved in some way, or they or they risk turning people off. Right, that's exactly right. And so they're they're in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot for the midterm, and you know, and again, they're digging in on policies, 
and, and statements that continue to push for these ultra progressive uh, uh, quote unquote solutions and the American people are, are not buying it. You know, I mean, when you have close to 80% of the American people, Trent, think the country's on the wrong track, headed in the wrong direction. So that's, that's a tough spot to be in if you're occupying the White House. Yeah. Well, in, in one area where on our side, we've seen a lot of progress to, to circle back around to where we started is on election integrity and talking about issues that voters care about. This is something that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not up there with, uh, uh, with inflation, but it is something that registers that voters are concerned about elections. And, uh, and we've seen some states take, you know, real action on this in the last couple of years. And, you know, a state like Florida has really been making in incremental improvements all the way going back to the, the 2000 debacle. Uh, Mike, do you, do you think that legislators are doing the right thing? Are they moving fast enough? What else needs to happen for voters to feel confident in these, these uh, actual democratic processes? Well, the election integrity efforts by a lot of states uh, that, you know, they've just finished up their, their legislative sessions. And we saw, Trent, we saw like 24 states pass legislation to improve election integrity in their own states. And, you know, the Zuckerberg scandal, the, the Zuckerberg uh, Foundation that poured millions into state election offices around the country to, quote unquote, help voter turnout or uh, uh, protect poll workers from COVID. Uh, it was, you know, it's been it's been outed that uh, vast millions were put into liberal districts to increase liberal voter turnout. So you had like 23 states pass laws that said outside influences can no longer contribute to state election officials. And so that's huge. And then, then you know, there were other states that passed legislation that called for greater ballot box security, to have bipartisan poll monitors, you know, to, to do some things to, to have an ID when you vote, to clamp down on illegal non-citizen voting. So there were there was significant action taken up a number of states uh, in 20, like 24 states passed election integrity legislation. So it's an issue and and uh, it, it, it it may not be one that people mention right off uh, as a top issue of concern. But when you start to talk to them about it, they're with they're with us on the need to make sure that, you know, it's it's a very simple message. We need to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And that's what these laws were doing in a number of states. Yeah. And, there, and there's no American who disagrees with that. Right. I mean, right. you know, other than, you know, people who are, are, are so far off in the ideological left that they uh, they don't make any sense to, to the rest of, of the country. But, yeah, I mean, everybody wants it to be, you know, right. easy for, for legal voters to vote and, and hard to cheat. So let me, uh, let me give you two two uh, uh, polling stats here. Yeah. Should government officer offices be allowed to accept funding for their operations from private individuals or groups? 82% say no. We don't outside influences putting money into state election process. And then uh, would you, uh, when you consider how important are election integrity and security to you, 79%, these are voters, not Republicans, 79% say it's, it's, it's a, a big yeah. issue for them. So once you ask people about what's going on on the election front, they're, they're with us for sure. Yeah. 
So uh, question number six on our six questions podcast, Mike Russell is always the same. It's, uh, <laughs> it's my favorite question. <laughs> so who is your favorite founding father and why? That's a tough one. Um, I, I have to go with Washington and it's a tough one. But uh, when you think about the central role that he played in the American Revolution uh, and then the, the founding of this nation, I mean, he obviously opposed taxes that were imposed by the British Parliament and uh, on the colonies. Um, he, he, and then when we broke from England, he had the scariest job in the world. I have yeah. to form, equip, train, and win with a Continental Army against Great Britain. I mean, how do you do that? How do you take yeah. it on at night and go, I'm going to be successful? Uh, and I, and I, you know, he set such a great tone as the first president where he self-imposed the, the two-term limit, you know, and then how do we address the office? It's not as royalty, it's as Mr. President. So, you know, he was, he was a man of courage and great character, uh, great horseman too, by the way. I've read some, yeah. some books on him. And, uh, and of course, with Mount Vernon being in our own backyard, I've had a chance to, to visit that, that home and have a, a real respect for, for Washington. He, he really was quite something. Now, having said that, Jefferson and close behind, but, uh, but George Washington, I would say, is, uh, is my choice. Yeah, I, I love I love going to Mount Vernon and going to Monticello in the contrast. You know, both beautiful homes very historic. Uh, and yet, you know, when you, when you really reflect on it, Washington's home is very practical. It's by the river. You can get, yeah. get goods in and out. Uh, you have good irrigation, all that, you know, Jefferson's home, much more beautiful up on oh, the yeah. hill, but not nearly so practical. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think the character of those men is kind of summed up in their geography and, and architecture and all of that, which I, I, I love it. And yeah, all of our viewers and listeners should, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to visit those homes, uh, it's just, it, it is so remarkable to see the way that, that Washington, Jefferson, the other founders lived and, and uh, you know, it's an added window into their, their lives and, and what they did. For sure. You know, when you, when you step across the threshold and walk into that front door at Mount Vernon, you stop and think about how everybody who was a player in history uh, at the time visited him there. Yeah. I mean, it was all of our founding fathers. It was, you know, it was international dignitaries, French leadership. I mean, anybody who played any role in the founding of this nation and the creation of our country walked right there where you're standing. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty awe-inspiring moment. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Mike Russell, uh, longtime senior executive with CRC Advisors and uh, just a, a really tremendous political analyst. Thank you so much for being on the program, walking us through some of the polling, some of the outlook for the fall. I know that's going to be of interest to our, uh, our our viewers. We may have you have you back on before too long uh, when we when we get closer to November to just uh, take another look at what what is likely to happen. But thank you so much for being a part of the program. Pleasure to Trent. You guys keep up the great fight at Save Our States because uh, you know this is this is a big agenda item for them. Uh, they really want a medal in the election process, and and you guys uh, are doing a terrific job of holding the line and, and winning at the state level, which is just vital. 
Thanks, Mike. And thanks again to all of you, our listeners and viewers out there. Thank you for being a part of what Save Our States does to take uh, materials like, like this podcast the blog posts and other information that we put up at saveourstates.com and spread them out to the people around you. Our documentary Safeguard is available on Amazon streaming and also the streaming service called Tubi uh, for free. So you can find it there, share those resources with, uh, with everyone you can. We win when we educate people and steer them back to the truth, the principles on which our nation was founded. Uh, it's a great advantage to be able to win by just telling people the truth. So thanks for being a part of it. We'll be back with another six questions next week.